What a wonderful day. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful day. Well, it's my privilege to to be with you uh, this morning, uh, be in the waters of baptism, and now being here to share God's Word with you. And um, this week we are continuing our series to the book of Matthew, and uh, right now in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning we're going to talk about uh, Who is Blessed by God, Part 2. Who is blessed by God, part two. Before we get started, let's pray together one more time. Oh, Lord, what a privilege to be here this morning. You are good and faithful and true. Thank you for Brother Billy Ray Rogers, Lord. Thank you for your work in his heart. And, oh, God, just bless him. Bless his family, Lord. And uh, we just pray that your work would continue. Uh, mightily, God in them. Thank you for this morning, Lord Jesus. Thank you that we can celebrate new life, God. Uh, You have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You have granted us new life in our hearts, Lord. Old self dying so that our new self could live. And we gather here this morning as your redeemed people, forgiven of our sins, citizens of the eternal heavenly kingdom, destined for a world free from sin where we will see your face. And we long for that day, Lord Jesus, and help us live, we pray, like citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can join me in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and this week, we're, as I mentioned, we're going to continue through the Sermon on the Mount, where I said last time that Christ is uh, teaching us who citizens of his kingdom of heaven are and how they are to live. And last time we noted that the sermon begins with the Beatitudes, which, which are saying, blessed are these kinds of people, and, and this is the blessing that they'll receive. And if you go and if you look through the Beatitudes right there in your Bible, what you'd see is that they're not first calls to do something, they're first calls to be something. And that is, uh, in Christianity, belonging to Christ is, is a change in being before it's a change in doing. It's being made new from the inside out. It's, by, it's, it's, it's turning from our sin and embracing Christ and Him coming into our, our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Born again, Jesus told Nicodemus, being made new from the inside out. In fact, you know, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, and they were the most externally religious people that they were. But he rebuked them, saying, first clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside would be clean. A straight jacket can make a man a decent person, but it can't make him a Christian. Only a new heart, a heart of love, a heart of humility, a heart of self-giving, a heart of self-sacrifice, a heart of meekness is descriptive of a Christian. And so we should pray that God would make us such kingdom people and we should cultivate and nurture these postures of heart in our lives. And something else I want to bring to our attention before we get to uh, the Beatitudes we're going to discuss today is I want us to see that there is a progression taking place here. I think if you, if you look at them, there's a logical order in, these, uh, in the Beatitudes here. 
First, as we talked about, it begins with poverty of spirit. It's humility. And humility is the foundational virtue of all virtues. Because humility is that posture of heart which says, I might might not know it all. I might not can do it all by myself. It's the, it's the baseline. It's the very beginning of where we can actually begin to be blessed by God because the only people who are blessed by God is that those who have the humility to acknowledge they need Him. And so the poverty of soul, that humility, knowing that we're unworthy of God and His grace, and apart from God, we can do nothing. That is the starting place. It is the fertile soil of faith and humility from which everything else can grow. And when we see our own spiritual poverty, then that moves us to the next one. We begin to mourn, and we mourn specifically over our sin. When we see how unworthy and how spiritually destitute we are, we see our sin, and we see, we see how far short we have fallen from God's holy standard and how we're under His righteous wrath and judgment that's due our sin. And what that does is it causes us to mourn over our sin. And that's, that's actually a good place to be. It's not bad to reflect on our sin and see how far we shall fall short of who God called us to be. To mourn over that, to weep, that's the beginning of God's a great work of grace in our hearts when we mourn over our sin. And that mourning of our sin brings us to the next one, which is meekness. It gives us a meekness. When you have seen the worst in yourself, that gives you a meekness of spirit. When you, when you think about the so-called worst sinner that you can think of, but when you've seen the worst in yourself, when you see that, that person, you'll, all, you'll, all you see is not how bad so-and-so is. You'll see, you'll see yourself. And you would, you'll say, there I would be if it wasn't for the grace of God in my life. It gives you a meekness, a humility. And then this brings us to our Beatitudes uh, today, and that's what we're going to talk about in these next three Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses 6 through 8. And if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Go to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Word of God. You may be seated. So, as we continue talking about who is blessed by God, we see our next three here. Who are blessed by God? The hungry and thirsty, the merciful, and the pure in heart. The hungry and thirsty, the merciful, and the pure in heart. So, First one here we're going to talk about, who is blessed by God? Verse 6, the hungry and the thirsty. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Before we can see how hungering and thirsting fits into this progression, we must first know what it is. What does it mean to hunger and to thirst for righteousness? Because this is the blessing. Now, don't lose sight of what's being said here. Jesus is pronouncing blessing over these over these kinds of people. Do you want blessing from God? Well, then you have to ask, what is this blessing? Who's it for? I want to, be, I want to receive this blessing that Jesus is pronouncing. 
hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Well, hungering and thirsting is a little more intuitive. So first we want to talk about what is the righteousness that he's talking about? What is the righteousness that he's talking about that we must hunger and thirst after? It's a matter of some debate, but most scholars recognize that Matthew uses the term righteousness here different from the way Paul typically uses it in his letters. It refers to a personal righteousness. It refers to living in a way that accords with God's righteous nature and will for our lives. So then the call to hunger and thirst for righteousness is, is, the, is, is Jesus is saying that there is a blessing for those who have a hunger and a thirsting in their heart to live rightly before God. Who have a hunger and a thirsting in their heart, a desire to please God with their lives. Those who look at life in such a way where they say, the one thing that I want to do in my life is to have a righteous heart, a righteous soul, to have God's righteousness worked in me and to see through me God's righteousness worked out in the world. It's a hungering and thirsting that our lives would be pleasing, acceptable offering to God. And we can't neglect the force of what's being said here, right? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Those are two of the strongest physical yearnings that exist. We'll die if our hunger is not satisfied. We'll die if our thirst is not satisfied. And what Jesus is calling us is to be people who can say, I'll die if I can't live righteously for my God. I'll die if I can't have that righteousness that I long to stand before God in. And so now we can see where this fits in to our progression. That is, one's awareness of their spiritual poverty leads them to mourn over sin. And this mourning over sin then produces a meekness of heart, a humility that places confidence in God and none in self. And then, once we take our eyes off of ourselves and we're now looking towards God... The follower of Christ wants nothing more than to please the God who has accepted him despite his sins, despite our sins. They see the beauty and the goodness of living a life according to God's will. Isn't that part of what, that's part of what it has to mean, right? To hunger and to thirst for righteousness. That is that you see You see, maybe for the first time in your life, you see how God's way of doing it is better than my way of doing it. It's more pure. It's more holy. It's more righteous. It's more true. It's finally living for something greater than ourselves. Finally living for something greater than just trying to find our place in this world. It's it's finding our place in God's eternal plan for the world. It's living for someone who's infinitely greater than ourselves and seeking to bring him glory and seeing all of our life as a a service, as a a stewardship, as a a battlefront in which which the the story of redemptive history is being played out and God has chosen me to play a role in it, to fulfill the plan that he is working in the world. It's better. God's way is better. It is a heart that's captivated by God and seeing that a life of righteousness in Christ is the only life worth living. And they want it more than anything. 
It's the heart that says, God is my portion. God is my portion. Forget the world. Forget my old self. I want God. Give me righteousness. Give me holiness. Give me a life that will please God. Give me a heart that is like God's. Give me the life that will give me the most of God. That's the life I want to live. And this is the cry of the Bible. It's the cry of the psalmist. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. What is, what is that one thing in life that you want the most? If it's not God, you're selling yourself short. Because God is greater than anything this world has to offer. Why? Because he made the world. And he offers not just stuff, he offers himself to you. As the all-satisfying portion of your soul. And what is the promised blessing for those who hunger and thirst in this way? What's the blessing? They'll be satisfied. You see that? You ever been satisfied? I mean, truly satisfied? Are you satisfied right now? Are you satisfied with your life? Are you satisfied with the way things have turned out? Are you satisfied with the decisions that you've made? What is God offering to you? He's offering to you 100% complete, pure, unmitigated satisfaction. The thing that you didn't even know you were looking and longing for. And he's saying, it's right here and it's been here all along. It's me. It's me. I am the satisfaction of your soul. Psalm 84, 11. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from him who walks uprightly. God is not... God is not over there keeping, keeping himself from us. You can have exactly as much of God as you want to have. The question is, do we hunger and thirst for him, for a righteous heart and a righteous mind? And see, that's the thing. It's the glory of it. It's, it's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. We think, well, you know, if I, I, I clamor for all this stuff and then it'll finally make me happy and how can you hunger and thirst and be satisfied at the same time? But this is what God is saying, is what Jesus is saying. The more you hunger and thirst, the more you'll be satisfied. The more you strive and long and pursue and run after God and his Christ, you will be satisfied in ways that you never thought possible. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. You hunger and thirst for a heart like God's. You hunger and thirst for God's righteous will to be done in the world. And he will. He will change you in ways that you didn't think were possible. 
temptations and sins and struggles and patterns of thought in your mind that you didn't think you would be able ever to overcome, and he will overcome them. And he will change them. And he will deliver you from them. He will do it now. And one day, he will complete the work that he begins now in us. And that's the great hope of the Bible. Because the Bible says that there is a day appointed when all who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be 100% completely satisfied. Because Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, the Bible says that the dead in Christ will be raised. And we will receive new bodies that can't grow old, can't get sick, can't experience pain or sorrow anymore. And the greatest, almost the greatest thing of all that is this. They can't sin. And we will be 100% completely righteous as he is righteous. Why? Because he will make us that way. It's not our work. It's God's work. We will be finally and fully satisfied in our longing for God forever. And so the invitation of the Old Testament stands today, and it stands this morning, Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come... Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's free. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. <laughs> Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. You see, why waste your time and money and your life on things that can't really satisfy you when God says, come to me? Come to me. True food. Remember Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I am living water. You come to Jesus and you'll be satisfied in ways you've never thought possible. So who is blessed by God? Number one, those hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Number two, who's blessed by God? The merciful. The merciful, verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They shall receive mercy. The next blessing is pronounced upon the merciful. Now, we have to ask, of course, what does it mean to be merciful? What does it mean to be merciful? How can we have this mercy? There's, to have a full orb picture of mercy, there's really two aspects of it. It includes both what we typically think of merciful, that is, as forgiving people of their sins, but it also includes what we may call acts of mercy. And that is to be merciful in the Bible also means to have a heart of compassion, that we look upon people in a fallen or needful state and we seek to deal and help, and help to alleviate the suffering and minister to people's needs in their hour of need. 
And we see both of these senses in the Bible and in the New Testament and in the book of Matthew, for that matter. For example, uh, in that, that first sense, we see it in the parable of the unforgiving servant. You remember this parable? We need to learn this parable again today. There was a servant that Jesus said that owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, talents is supposed to be 75 pounds of gold. How many of you have 75 pounds of gold lying around? Now, imagine, now multiply that by 10,000. Okay? It's like me saying a gajillion dollars. It's like me saying the amount of our national debt. Okay? It's impossible. It's almost inconceivable how you could even borrow that much money, much less pay it back. And, he, oh, and so Jesus, obviously, he's telling us something here. He's telling us that, there is, that we are in incalculable debt to God because of our sin. And yet in this parable, the servant goes to the king, and what does he do? He does the, literally the only thing he can do because it's impossible for him to pay it back. What does he do? He begs for mercy. God, have mercy on me. And what does the king do? He does the unbelievable. Why? Because whose money, whose 10,000 talents was squandered? It was his. It was his money that was squandered. And he tells the man, I forgive you. You don't owe me a dime. I'll absorb the loss in myself. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And the man walks out. The man walks out of the room. And he runs into a dude who owes him 100 denarii, which compared to this is like nothing. Pocket change. And he runs into the guy who owes him 100 denarii. And he puts his hands around his neck and says, give me my money. Don't that make you sick to your stomach? Give me my money. Chokes him out. Then what does the man do? He does the same thing the other man just did. Please forgive me. I'll pay you back. And this man probably could have paid, this man could have paid that kind of sum back. And yet even for that small sum, the man says, no, I'm going to throw you in prison. Debtor's prison because you owe me. Remember how it ends? Matthew 18, 32. Then the master summoned this unforgiving servant and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. In other words, he's never getting out. Verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see what Jesus is saying? He is saying, if you don't grasp how great, how unbelievable a thing it is that God would forgive you of your sins. Then you won't forgive others. And in fact, someone who can't forgive another human being for a slight against them proves that they've never really tasted the forgiveness of God. 
Because if you have truly been forgiven that much and you realize how much you have been forgiven by God, there would be no way that you could walk out from God's presence and not forgive others. It'd be impossible if you've truly tasted the forgiveness of God. And that's what Jesus is teaching. The unforgiving are unforgiven. The merciful will have mercy. And we see how this fits into this progression, right? When we see the, po- when we see our, the poverty of our soul and our need of God, we mourn after our sin, and that creates a meekness in our hearts. And we then look away from ourselves because there's nothing in ourselves to look to, and we look to God, and then we want to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that we know we don't have, but that we know that God can give us. And then we begin to live out what God is working in us, which is mercy. We have tasted of the mercy of God despite all of our sins, and therefore we can't help but extend that same mercy to others. And now we, we note here, just as a cultural aside that we just should acknowledge today, that mercy is not blind acceptance of sin. It's not saying it's okay to things that God has called evil. Some people want to say that's mercy, so we just need to make sure that we, don't, we have a biblical definition of mercy. Mercy is not saying it's okay that thing is called sin. It's not. In fact, if, if that was true, then there'd really be no such thing as sin. And if there's no such thing as sin, then mercy is actually meaningless. Because mercy means what? Withholding from some, a, an, an evil the judgment that it's actually due. And so if things are actually not, if there's nothing that's actually a sin, then mercy is meaningless. But it's only precisely because sin is so wicked and an offense against Almighty God that makes His mercy so great. And so mercy is, is withholding of what sins justly deserve. And since God has shown that to us, we must show it to others. And again, from a kingdom perspective, I think we have to remember that merciful is not something first that we do, it's, it's something that we are, right? Which I think it would be a misunderstanding here to read Jesus as saying that our mercy, our mercy towards others is the basis of his mercy towards us. I think, that's, I think that's getting it backwards. We're not saved because we're merciful to others. We don't belong to Jesus because we're merciful to others. We're merciful to others because we belong to Jesus. We show mercy, not in order to receive mercy. We show mercy because we've already been shown mercy. Our mercifulness is the fruit that grows out of the root of a heart that has already experienced the deep mercy of God. So that's one aspect of mercy. And then a final aspect of mercy, as we talked about, is the kindness and compassion towards others. This is epitomized in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. You're familiar with that. Man was on the road. He gets attacked by robbers. The priest and the Levite, the religious people of the day, walk by and they don't do anything to help this man. And then a Samaritan walks by, who the Jews hate because they're half-breed Jews. They're half-breeds. And they don't, they don't follow the, the, the Orthodox Judaism. And yet here comes the Samaritan, and he sees this guy, and he is the only one who stops. And he binds up his wounds, and he puts them on his own donkey, and he carries them to an inn, and he pays the innkeeper out of his own pocket and says, take care of him. And if 
And if I owe you any more, when I get back, I'll pay you for that. And Jesus concludes that parable by saying this in Luke 10. Which of these three, the Levite, the priest of the Samaritan, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You see, because what about it? Well, that's, that's what we were like. The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. But then God, it says, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In other words, we were dead, we were lying dead beside the road, and Jesus came by and picked us up and bore the cost in himself to make us well. And since God has shown such mercy to us, how can we not show the same mercy to others? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So number one, who's blessed by God? The hungry and thirsty. Number two, the merciful. And finally, number three, the pure in heart. The pure in heart. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, my mentor, a, a pastor of Lakeview Baptist in Auburn, Alabama, uh, this is one of his favorite verses. If you ask him, Brother Al, how can I pray for you? Nine times out of ten, this is what he's going to say. Pray Matthew 5.8 for me. Pray that I would be pure in heart so that I can see God. And I'll say the same thing. Pray this verse for me. So first we have to ask, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Intuitively, we have an idea, but let's flesh it out. We can say a pure heart is one that is guided by pure motives, right? A heart that's guided by pure motives. It's a genuine heart, an authentic heart. There's no, there's no hypocrisy. What they present themselves to be and what they present themselves as doing is what they really are. It's what they're really doing. What you see is what you get. It is a heart that in deepest sincerity truly desires and works and is guided by a desire for the glory of God and the good of others in everything that they do. It is a heart that's undefiled by ulterior motives. There, there's, no, there's nothing secret. They're not, they're not subtly you know, just trying to jockey for, to get themselves in a better position or to flatter or to put themselves in, you know, scratch your back so you can scratch theirs. But they're pure in heart. Not a flatterer, but a genuine encourager. Not a user, but an empowerer. Not a manipulator, but ones whose real motives are evident and righteous. No guile, no deceit. Pure in heart. Purity of heart, of course, is epitomized in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. No one ever had a pure heart than Jesus Christ. Think about the man. He's unlike any man who's ever lived. Jesus never sought personal gain. Jesus died and the only thing he owned was the shirt on his back. 
even though at one point the people tried to take him and forcibly make him their king. He never sought personal gain. All he did was love, love, love people. And he urged people into the kingdom. And he healed the sick. And he fed the hungry. And even many people who really didn't even believe in him, but just hung around for what he could do for them, he still helped them out. And he shot people straight. He exposed people's idols. He wasn't just trying to draw a crowd. He turned people away. He told the rich young ruler, in essence, he told him, he, he, he forced him to, to choose your money or me, and he walked away from Jesus. Jesus told people hard truths because eternity was at stake. He didn't put on airs. He wasn't out there just trying to gain a following. He had one goal for his life, one all-consuming passion and vision for his life that guided everything he did. I must glorify my Father. I must fulfill the purpose for which my Father sent me. Utter purity of heart in everything that he did for you and for me. And if we are citizens of his kingdom, then we must be pure in heart as well. And so we must cry out to God, God, give us pure hearts. God, expose it to me when my heart isn't pure and give me the grace to turn from it. God, show me where I'm pursuing myself rather than the glory of God and the good of others. Where I'm, where I'm manipulating, where, where I'm, I'm working and acting to, to put things in my favor rather than actual genuine love for God and love for others. David, when he had sinned as greatly as he did, back-to-back adultery and murder, he asked God for a miracle, and this is what he asked for, Psalm 51.9. Hide your face from my sins, God. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. This beatitude is just a restatement of Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Do you want to see God? Is that even even appealing to you? It's the greatest thing that could possibly happen to any of us. Think about the person, think about the greatest person you've ever known or the person you love the most. And imagine you're kept away from them for a long time. But then one day, you see them again. Think about God Almighty, who created all things by the word of his power who made you, who woke you up from bed this morning, who the only reason your heart is beating right now is because God is keeping the count of it in his mind. Tick, 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 tick. And not only that, but despite all of our sins and rebellion and selfishness against God Almighty, God sent his only son into the world that we might be forgiven of our sins 
not perish, and have everlasting life. And this Jesus, this real Jesus, died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. Before he died, the night before he died, he prayed for everyone who would believe in him. That means everyone in this room, Jesus prayed for you. And the Bible says right now, he's interceding for us. He has the scars in his hands. He has scars in his feet. He has the scars in his side. And one day, one day we shall see him. The one who died for us. That's the blessing of being pure in heart. You get to see God. Remember Moses in the wilderness? He said, God, show me your glory. And God said, I can't. It'll kill you. You can can see, I can hide you in this rock, and you can see the the tail end train of my glory as I walk by. But the Bible says Jesus is the glory of God. And that As we behold him, we're changed from one degree of glory to the next. What is the great Christian hope? What is the great Christian hope? Seeing saved family members will be wonderful. Seeing all the wonderful things in heaven will be incredible. But there will be nothing like seeing our Savior. And what we see only by faith now, one day our faith will be swallowed up by sight. And your trust and your faith in God will be vindicated. Remember what Jesus told Thomas? You see and believe. Blessed are those who don't see and believe. Blessed are those. There's a special blessing for us who have not seen him, but believe in him. And as we believe in him, our hearts are made pure. And as our hearts are pure before him, we have this blessing of God that we shall see him. Are you pure in heart this morning? Are you pure in heart this morning? Reality is, you can't make your heart pure. Only God can. And so the invitation is the same invitation that our brother Billy Ray Rogers responded to. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins. Embrace him as your Lord and Savior, and you will be saved. Bow the knee, bow your heart to him. Surrender. Say with Jesus, God, no, not my will be done, but your will be done in me. Surrender. Believe, trust, turn from your sins. Embrace him as the king. Own him now, and he'll own you then. As his. And so I pray we have, this, we have this wonderful testimony in our minds as we speak. Sins forgiven, washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Old self dying, new self being raised to life. That can happen this morning. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, the invitation is simple. Believe in him. Turn from your sins and you will be saved. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation. This altar is going to be opened. This is your opportunity to respond. If you'd like to talk about how you can follow Christ, you can come right up to me, put your hand on my shoulder, and say, Pastor Chad, I want to be saved. I want to be saved. 
If something else, if the Lord is dealing with you, this is your opportunity to respond. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for...